Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning uh, once again, and uh, welcome to Candeo. If this is your first time, I haven't met you. My name's Jake. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and this morning we're jumping back into John chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to John 13. Back in 2014, my wife Sarah and I went to visit some friends who were living in La Crosse, Wisconsin at the time, and uh, I graduated from college in 2010, and our friend graduated in 2013 because she's a pharmacist and much smarter than us, but needed more schooling. So, uh, But they moved to La Crosse. We went to La Crosse where they're showing us around their new you know, their new city, their new home, and we're walking kind of in the down, I don't know if it's the downtown area. It it was like this nice little quaint area kind of by the river where they had this favorite ice cream shop, and we're walking down there, and as we're walking, I'm noticing these piles of bugs, like everywhere, right? And they're acting like this is normal, and I'm I'm like, what is, what, what has happened, right? And Kim, our friend, looks over at me, and she's like, oh, you didn't hear? Like two weeks ago, there was this swarm of mayflies that hatched along the Mississippi and like demol- like not demolished, because mayflies don't demolish anything, but they like came and took over everything. I was like, what are, you t- what are you talking about? She's like, no, legit, they had to shut down bridges that were going over the Mississippi because they had to call in snow plows to help push these mayflies out so that cars could get through. Like, the, 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 these mayflies were piled up on these cars, like knee deep, right? And she's like, it was so bad that it actually showed up on a radar as like a small storm. I found a picture of that radar. That's not a storm. That's the mayfly swarm that went up the Mississippi through lacrosse, right? Like some of you who are like bug people, you know, not bug people, you're just kind of like, I would rather die. I'd rather the mayflies just eat me alive than have to live in that, you know? And, <laughs> and I suppose maybe, the, maybe one redeeming factor, okay, of mayflies, I learned this, is that mayflies are the shortest living creature on earth. Maybe you knew this, I didn't know this. They live exactly 24 hours. From birth to death, 24 hours. Now, I'm sure if you're sitting on that bridge waiting for the snowplows to come, like 24 minutes feels like a lifetime, right? But just wait long enough. If you ever get a mayfly infestation in your house, just wait a day and they will die. They live exactly 24 hours. What would you do if you knew you had 24 hours left to live? What would you do if you knew that in 1,440 minutes, your life was going to be done? What would you do? Now, my guess is that some of you would probably get up and leave right now. Like, you'd be like, I know this sermon's going to go long. Nobody has time for that. Like, I've got 24 hours, right? I'm, I'm out of here, you know? Maybe, maybe some people would kind of turn inward and would have maybe like a pity party, you know? Like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, all the things I want to do. Like, you'd, you'd have a pity party for yourself. Or maybe you, wouldn't, you would take out the pity and you would just have an actual party, right? Like, you're like, I got 24 hours left. I'm gonna live it up. I don't care what the bill is at the restaurant. 
I don't care how much the speeding ticket is. Take me to court. Try that. I won't be here tomorrow. Like, just live it up. No consequences. What would you do if you had a day left to live? Or maybe the, maybe the right question isn't so much like, what would you do? Maybe the better question is, what kind of person would you be? What kind of person would you be? You have 24 hours. Who would you be? Like I said, we're jumping back into John this morning. We're starting back here in John 13. And if, if you'll remember, uh, John chapter 1 through 11 was really an overview of the first three years of Jesus's public ministry on earth. Three years, 11 chapters. Now, as we turn the corner into the second half of the book of John, from chapter 13 really to about chapter 20, what we see is what Jesus does in the final moments of his life here on earth. If John 1 through 11 is like a wide angle lens on a camera where you can just see like the whole landscape, there's a lot there. John 13 through 20 is like taking a telescope and we're zooming in on who Jesus was and what Jesus did in the final moments of his life here on earth. And what we're gonna see this morning is that what Jesus does and who Jesus is in his final moments left on earth should define for the disciple of Christ who we are and what we do. With the short time that we have left on earth, you may not have 24 hours left to live. You may feel like I've got a lot of life left to go, but James will tell us that our life is a vapor. It's a short time, and who Jesus is and what he did should define who we are and what we do. So John chapter 13, look at verses 1 through 3 here. It says, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So what do we see here? We see that Jesus is sitting here at this Passover dinner with his friends. The Passover is, uh, think of it, it's like the holidays, right? Like he's sitting here at this holiday dinner with his friends. And what we see here in these first three verses is that Jesus knew his authority, that the Father had given everything into his hands. Jesus knew his origin, that he had come from the Father, that this was like the big question throughout Jesus's ministry in the first 11 chapters, right? Like, who are you and where do you come from? So Jesus knew his authority, and he knew his origin. And not only that, but Jesus knew his destiny. He knew where he was going, that it was about time to return to the Father. So Jesus knew all of these things that were true about him, all of, the, all of these things that were aspects of defining that he is the Son of the living God. And knowing all of this, you and I, if, if, we, if, we, if we thought these things about ourselves— how highly would we think of ourselves in this moment? But look at verse four. Knowing all these things, so he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. So Jesus 
knowing his exalted place goes low. Knowing his origin, knowing his authority, knowing his destiny, in spite of all of this, he gets up, puts on a towel, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now, I don't know if you've heard this yet or not. I'm sure it'll come out fairly soon on the news that there is a, uh, a disease going around. It's not new, um, but it's very prevalent. It is highly contagious, and uh, there, there is no known cure for it. And uh, it's been around for a long time, actually. It's called the man cold. You heard of a man cold? Okay. So, if you haven't heard of the man-cold virus, here's what it is. It's, uh, um, it's pretty detrimental. It's a debilitating disease that only men can get, right? And uh, even though it's basically just the common cold, um, when men get man-colds, the only like known treatment for the man-cold is, uh, is, is being promptly relieved of all household responsibilities, okay? Um, being administered large amounts of, of television watching, okay? And then the, the final thing that is required to treat the man cold is that you need to be waited on hand and foot for absolutely everything by everyone else in the house, all right? And maybe, just if you're lucky, it will go away, okay? Has, has anyone in here had a man cold, men? You know what I'm talking about? Has anyone ever treated a man with a man cold? Okay, you know how agonizing that is, huh? Sounds familiar, right? Now, I don't know about you, but it is a, uh, an embarrassingly low threshold of either pain that I'm experiencing or pain that I know that I'm about to experience that will cause me to expect to be served rather than demonstrate servanthood. I don't know if you're the same. That the smallest inconvenience, the smallest sniffle, the smallest amount of difficulty that comes into my life, it can be so easy for me to turn inward, so easy for me to go, oh my gosh, like life is just terrible. I need, I need some help. I need, I need, you know, I need my wife, I need my kids, I need whoever else is around me. Can, can you just, can you just kind of like give me a break? Can you just kind of like, like don't, ex don't expect a lot from me. I've, gosh, I have to admit, I have told my wife that before. In, the, in, the, in view of a very busy and possibly stressful week, when she has asked, how can I serve you this week? I have said, don't expect much from me. But here's Jesus. If anyone had the right to expect service, if anyone had the right to be waited on hand and foot, Here's Jesus. If anyone had the right to turn inward in the face of, of a difficult time about to happen, as he's about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, as he's about to be abandoned by the rest of his friends, as he's about to be beaten to a pulp, nailed to a cross, forsaken by his father, and yet despite all of this, all of this, he demonstrates servanthood 
by doing the, the lowliest, the dirtiest, the most socially looked down on thing that you could possibly do. See, see Jesus is, is like this perfect display, right? Like from, from the highest of accolades, remember, he knew his, his authority, he knew his origin, he knew his destiny, the highest of accolades to the greatest of agony that he was about to experience. Jesus demonstrates for us servanthood by washing feet. We've touched on this a little bit before in the book of John, where washing feet in the first century was an incredibly, incredibly demeaning, uh, humbling is probably is too low or too high of a word to say. Like, like washing feet is the lowest of the lowest of the low. How it was, it was in most places illegal for rabbis to expect their disciples to even tend to their feet. That even in some places, that even if you were a slave in the household, that it was illegal for for the master to expect the slave to even wash people's feet, right? Like, and this is why it's so significant when John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. This is why it's so significant when Mary comes in and pours out the perfume on his feet and washes his feet with her hair. If you were to wash feet, you were signaling to everyone else around you that you are the lowest in the room. You're the lowest in social status. You're the lowest in economic status. You're the lowest in power. You're the lowest in standing. And yet here's Jesus with the highest rank, the highest possible rank in the universe, the highest standing going low, becoming a servant of servants. Now, why does Jesus do this? Jump ahead to verse 12. Verses 12 through 17. Why does Jesus wash their feet? Verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I... Your Lord and teacher, I've washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So first thing we need to see, why in the world does Jesus wash his disciples' feet? He washes their feet to make it abundantly clear, to make it as clear as possible that if you are going to be his disciple, that there is no act of service beneath you. No act of service beneath you. We see, we see Jesus is saying, if I, the master, if I, your teacher, if I, your Lord, if I, the son of God, the creator of the universe, do these kinds of things, then nothing is beneath you either. Who do you think you are? to think that you are above any act of service. If I, God himself, do these things, you should do these things as well, which means for you and for me that there is no dish so dirty, there is no nose so runny, there is no diaper so messy, I, I knew someone that told his wife that there weren't changing tables in the men's bathroom. And he didn't change a diaper here for a year. His wife was not happy. <laughs> and I was like, they've been here the whole time. Like, he could have done that. 
There is no toilet so clogged. There is no task so menial that you as a disciple are above setting aside your own pride, your own position, and serving even in the lowest of ways. What tasks, what things in your life do you think, I'm above that? What things at your workplace do you go, not my job, not my job. I don't get paid to do that. We, we actually have someone who takes care of that. What in your life do you think you are above doing? Who in your life do you think that you are above serving? See, there's no indication in, this, in the text that would indicate that Jesus didn't wash Judas's feet. Did you notice that? See, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, and yet he served him anyway. He washed his feet anyway. Oh, it's, it's easy to serve your friends most of the time, right? It's easy to serve the people that you like or the people that you benefit from or there's like a reciprocal relationship, like there's a give and take. Like I know if I serve them, then, then at some point I know if I help them move that when I move, they're gonna help me too. It's easy to serve your friends. But what about Judas? He was the group accountant who embezzled money the whole time. And in not too long was going to totally sell out both their leader and his and all of his friends, sell them out for 30 pieces of silver, which in, a, in today's money is about $300. Sell them out for 300 bucks. You see, Jesus washing the feet of his friends is shocking enough. It's low, lowly enough. But we also see Jesus washing the feet of his enemies. So yes, serve your friends, serve your family. That's good and right. But that grumpy neighbor, that annoying coworker, that overbearing boss, yeah, them too. So what's most clear from our text this morning is that if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus, then you must become and be the kind of person who sacrificially serves. That, that's, that's the clearest part of this text, that regardless of your status, regardless of your position, regardless of who you are and what you do, that we would be people who are not above any act of service, from your closest friend to your most hostile enemy. That's like, that's like the most plain part of this text. But we have to ask the question, is that it? Like, is what Jesus is doing right here in John chapter 13 is the main thing that we're supposed to take away that, ah, you know what, you're right, maybe I should do some more housework. Is that it? I want to suggest something this morning, and, and I, I want to suggest what I think is a deeper meaning for this, and then I wanna show you from the scripture how I come to that interpretation. Because what I think is happening here is that what Jesus is doing is not less than demonstrating physical acts of service that we as disciples should do for one another and for others. It's not less than that. But what I think Jesus is doing is he's demonstrating something much, much more. And here's what, here's, what it, here's what it is, and then I want to prove it to you, okay? I think 
that Jesus was modeling, that what he was modeling is that our responsibility as disciples is to not only care for the needs of one another's bodies, but to also care for the condition of one another's souls. In other words, I'll put it this way. What's happening here, Jesus washing the feet, of his, the feet of his disciples is not ultimately a word about communal hygiene, but is ultimately a word about communal holiness. Now, this isn't ultimately about social work. This is about soul work. You say, where do you get that? Go back to verse 6. And let's look at this interaction that Jesus has with Peter as he's washing the disciples' feet. Look at verse 6. So Jesus has, 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 uh, has gotten up from supper. He's taken a towel, tied it around himself. Now he has the basin of water. He's going around. He's washing the disciples' feet. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. And then the beginning of verse 8, Peter says, you will never wash my feet. So Peter is refusing to have Jesus do such a low thing for him. Peter recognizes in this moment that, no, Jesus, not only would this not make sense for us to do for one another, that would in fact like be illegal for us to even do this for you. Like it makes no sense that you're doing this for us. You will never wash my feet. Peter's refusing. And instead, what we're going to see here in just a second, instead of just saying, Peter, can you just let me finish my illustration on social work? Just let me finish this illustration. You're ruining it. Just let me wash your feet. Jesus looks right at him. End of verse 8. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. That seems like an overreaction. If the main point is just about feet. But what we have here is in this interaction with Jesus and Peter is that Jesus is doing something and talking about something on this level and Peter is understanding it on this level. We've seen this throughout John like all the time where Jesus is saying one thing on one level and people are understanding a different thing on a different level. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how in the world do I get back into my mother's womb? He says to the woman at the well, well, drink for me, you will have living water. And she's like, you don't even have a bucket. He says, I am the bread of life. See, Jesus is always talking up here and people are under, always understanding him down here. So why, it, why does Peter get this response from Jesus when Peter refuses for Jesus to wash his feet? It's because Jesus is telling Peter, he's saying, Peter, this isn't mainly about your feet. This isn't mainly about a foot washing, that me washing your feet, it stands for something. It represents something. Look at verse, look at verse nine. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Verse eight, verse nine, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. 
Now, why did he say that? Verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is connecting uncleanliness with the impending betrayal that was about to happen at the hands of Judas. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, this is not about the state of your feet. This is about the state of your soul. If you don't let me wash you, Peter, then you are in the same camp as Judas. You see, Judas wasn't clean. And the reason why Judas wasn't clean wasn't because he hadn't showered. It was because Judas didn't believe. And yeah, Jesus washed Judas's feet. Judas looked great on the outside. At least from what you could see, everyone could see his feet after Jesus washed his feet, looks great. But what Jesus is saying is that Judas has not been bathed, not physically, but Judas has not been cleaned in all the parts that you can't see. Judas has not been cleaned on the inside because Judas doesn't believe. So what's with this washing and bathing language? Here's my take. My take is that what Jesus, my take on this is that when Jesus says the one who has bathed is completely clean, that what he's saying is that when you believe in him, that he is the son of God, the savior of the world. This is the confession that Peter gives to Jesus, uh, gives to Jesus in Matthew 16, when Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter declares, you are the, the Christ, the son of the living God. That when you believe that Jesus is who he is, did what he did and received that for yourself, that you are completely clean before God that you have been bathed in your innermost being by the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who now indwells you by faith. And at the same time, that while those who believe are objectively clean before God, that there is still a present reality. This, this, this is just true physically, right? No matter how great your shower, no matter how good your soap, that eventually when you jump out and you go to get the mail without putting shoes on, your feet will get dirty. And that this foot washing is referring to the fact that while we are completely clean in Christ, that we still live in a fallen world. We still come in contact with a fallen world. We still battle the old fleshly desires that Christ has broken the chains on us from. We still battle those things. And we still have a daily need for continual repentance as we confess our sins and confess our daily need for the Holy Spirit to apply the cleansing power of the gospel to our life. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, completely clean if you believe and you also, the parts of you that are still on this earth will continually get dirty and will need to be continually cleaned as you live a lifestyle of confession and repentance as God does his sanctifying work in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for us? Back to verse 14. 
if this is what this means, which I'm convinced from the text that it is, that Jesus is talking about something totally uh, greater than simple physical acts of service for one another. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. So what does this mean for us? Church, wash one another's feet. I'm not saying like, like start taking off your shoes. What I'm saying is that if this, if this foot washing was in fact a display of our regular and daily need for confession and repentance, then what Jesus tells them, then when he tells them to wash one another's feet, what he's saying is that we don't just have a responsibility for each other's physical well-being, but we have a responsibility to one another for, for each other's spiritual well-being. That yes, you may be bathed in the grace of God through the finished work of Christ and the Holy Spirit has come into your life. That is, that may be true of you, that you still have a daily need for brothers and sisters to come alongside you and help you see what you can't see that you will live in accordance as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We need one another. A, a little while back, I was, I was tucking my son, my five-year-old son into bed. And um, sometimes, sometimes what I'll do when, when I'm tucking him into bed is we'll finish reading the Bible. I'll turn off the lights, but the, the light from the hall is still coming in. And so we can still see each other. And, and I'll look over at him. I'll go, I'll go, Judah, do you know what I like about you? And he'll always, he'll always go, no. Because he, he just wants to hear it again, right? And so I'll, I'll think of everything I can think of about what I like about, about him. And so I'll just, I'll just like start rattling off all these things, you know? So this, so this night we're doing that and, uh, and, and I'm rattling off all these. I'm trying to speak courage and life into him and uh, for him to know that, that he's my favorite Judah and I love being his daddy and all these kinds of things. It's a, it, it's a real sweet moment, you know, uh, with, uh, with your kids, especially when they're that age. They're just so, I don't know. It's just really great. So, so we're having this moment and, uh, and I get done saying all these things to him and he looks over at me. I can, I can see his face, you know, the, the light from the hallway. He looks at me and he goes, Daddy... Your breath smells like goats. <sighs> we had just had this moment, right? Like, okay, one, I don't know whether my breath smelled like goats, okay? I don't have a point of reference. I don't know what goats smell like offhand. Apparently he does. And he thought my breath smelled like goats. Probably did. I don't know. And here's what's crazy about that, okay? Let's just assume that Judah was right. Our noses sit one inch from our mouths. Have you ever thought about this? Our noses are one inch away from our mouths. And yet most often, we can't even smell our own breath. You don't know if your breath smells like goats or coffee or giraffes. I don't know, whatever animal you want. Like, probably right now. You're like, I actually don't know what my breath smells like. Uh-oh. But instead, we can't, we can't smell our own breath. But instead, what we need is we need those around us who hopefully in a loving way will tell us, your breath smells like goats. And how much more 
We can't smell our own breaths. How much more do we need brothers and sisters in Christ around us who can see what we can't see, who can smell what we can't smell, who can see in our lives the things that aren't congruent with what the disciple, with what the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ should look like, who love us enough to come wash our feet, say, hey, in not, in not, not like a high and mighty way, right? Like that's, that's part of the point of the foot washing. But in a, in a humble towel around the waist, Bible in your hand, like this isn't about personal preferences. This isn't like, oh, I don't like the color yellow and you look terrible in yellow. Like find a verse for that. You know, this is like, no, the Bible in their hand saying, hey, listen, I'm not perfect. You know that. God knows that too. And, and I... We're all, we're all trying to live according to this, right? And I think maybe there's something that you haven't seen. Can I share that? Can I share that with you? And I would love to actually like grow in that with you. And even like we can help each other in this as well. A humble kind of service for one another. That we would care enough about each other that we would remind each other of the cleansing power of the gospel and be committed enough to each other to help apply that to one another's lives continually. Do you have those kinds of people in your life? Are you that kind of person in the lives of others? Or have you avoided Christian community so much that like Peter, you are actively pushing away the very people that you actually need if you're going to be a follower of Christ? You see, a, a mark of genuine faith, a mark that you have been bathed in the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that you actually invite this kind of gospel-speaking, grace-celebrating, sin-fighting community into your life. Yeah, P Peter pushed him away for a moment. But when he realized that if he would not be continually washed, if, their feet, if his feet wasn't washed by Jesus, that he'd have no part with him, he said, then do all of it. Like he overcorrected, right? And Jesus is like, whoa, you just need your feet, man. But he's like, hey, whatever it takes for me to be associated with Christ, for me to be with Christ, for me to have a part with Christ. Whatever it is, I'll do it. Whatever you need to say, I'll hear it. Do you want Jesus so much that you invite that kind of corrective word, the kind of corrective word that it takes to make you more like him? And the irony isn't lost on me that this morning is Connect Sunday. You, you might think we planned this. We didn't plan this. This message has been scheduled for a year and a half. The irony isn't lost on me that this morning is Connect Sunday. You see, this is why we care about Christian community at Candeo. It's not mainly because we care about your social life. It's mainly because we care about your soul. If we are going to walk as disciples of Jesus Christ, full of grace, full of truth, Glorying in the gospel, we need one another to help apply that gospel to one another's lives on a daily basis. So Christian, go low. 
Husbands, go low. Teachers, go low. Connection group leaders, CEOs, managers, supervisors, go low. See how Jesus stooped to serve you. See how Jesus, in his final moments on earth, knelt and served. And with these few moments, our life is a vapor. With these few moments that we have left on this earth, would we look to our glorious Savior who has served us, and would we serve one another? Yes, physically, absolutely. But would we care for one another's souls as well? Would we be that kind of church? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you have served us in the greatest of ways. You are high and lifted up, exalted above all. And yet you served us by being lifted up on a cross. Scorned and mocked, taking God's wrath toward our sin on your shoulders. Oh, Jesus, thank you for serving us in this way. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would turn us into a kind of people, a serving, going low, towel around the waist, caring for one another's bodies and souls kind of people. Oh God, would you help us? Would we have a peculiar love for one another that astounds and astonishes? the watching world. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.